Nevo Zissen is a queer author, speaker, performer and activist. They were assigned female at birth, but by the age of four, knew that that just couldn't be right. They would kick and scream to be taken out of the girls' section of the shops with all the pink and the sparkles. People would call them a drama queen, and Nevo would say, I'm a drama king. Nevo began their medical transition to male in 2014 and later came to identify as non-binary. Today, they run workshops in schools and professional development training in workplaces all around transgender identities. Their speaking and writing in this space has been affirming for so many queer kids and adults and educative for friends, family and allies alike. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Bron will be jumping into the chair in a moment to bring you The Weekend List, where she and I recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my conversation with Navo Zissen. And just a heads up that our conversation briefly touches on the topic of suicide. So if that's not something that's the best for you to hear right now, then head back to the briefing feed and find yourself another one of our great episodes. Nevo Zissen, welcome to the Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Also, just to hang out. Yeah, me too. Look, you and I have hung out online a few times, but it's been a little while. We've both been to events watching the other one, but we haven't actually chatted. And one of the things that I normally wouldn't tell our audience, but I want to bring you guys in on this, everyone, is that the first discussion we just had before coming on mic was making sure that I was actually pronouncing Nevo's name properly. And I wanted firstly to congratulate you because it is hard. It is weirdly hard to tell people that they have got your name wrong. And I am a Jamila Rizvi living in Australia, which means I get the same thing. And I, I, I have a big event coming up in uh, next week, which I won't go into, but it's a really big deal. And they spelled my name wrong, like on all of the, the comms. And it probably oh. took me 48 hours to find the courage, maybe, to find a way to say, um, excuse me, could you please spell my name correctly? Because <laughs> this is a big deal. Why do you think that some of us feel awkward about asserting ourselves in that context to simply ask for something we're owed, that's mm-hmm. a basic dignity, and why are you comfortable doing it? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I think, I think in a really big way, what it is is like a lot of whiteness, you know, mm-hmm. and obviously like I am white. My name is Hebrew and I come from an Ashkenazi Jewish background and my family changed their names when they moved to Australia and anglicised mm-hmm. their names. And I think that generally, um, you know, members of minority groups are made to feel like we are difficult no matter what. And so we are doing our best to be less difficult. (laughs) And I think the ways that that impacts me compared to people of colour is really different. So I think that that also substantiates a little bit my like ability to kind of stand up and, and correct my name pronunciation also comes from white privilege and that I might be more likely to be listened to or, mm. or respected in that experience, I think. And I guess also, like, as a trans person, I am constantly correcting people's use of my pronouns. Yeah. So it becomes a muscle that I am, like, relatively well-practised in now. 
it's funny. It's almost like I'm going to compare it a little bit to like, you can either have a clean room or a clean car, but you can't have both. That's sort of how I feel about my my name and my pronouns. Yeah. Like I'll, yeah. I'll sort of pick one. I'm like, yeah. oh, today I'm I'm going to do my name one or, <laughs> you know, today I'm going to defend my pronouns. Um, but it does get awkward. I think my, my most awkward is when people introduce me and then say, oh, I hope I got that right. Mm. And it's like, well, you didn't. You didn't. And that's, and that's fine. Like I actually yeah. don't even really mind that much, mm. but now I have to like tell you that you did when you didn't, or I have to correct you in front of everyone right before I start speaking about my yeah. like trauma on a stage. And I'm like, I'd really rather not do any of this. So yeah, I think it's a lot of things, but I think it's like, yeah, a combination of like whiteness, internalized misogyny, like not wanting yeah. to like speak up and be too difficult also just like social anxiety and awkwardness. And, you know, I think it's like that weird dance that we do around lots of kind of uncomfortable things that sometimes it's just not worth the trouble. It's like, I'd rather just get my name mispronounced than have to dance around all these things. And you're right. Like for the, for the trans and and non-binary community, that is a constant expectation that you will clarify who you are for people all the time. I imagine Mm -hmm. like you can't kind of can't exist in the world without either making that choice, I imagine, to either make a clarification or not make a clarification. That risk is there when you go to the supermarket, when you meet someone new at work. Yeah, it's decision fatigue. I'm trying to even imagine what that would be like. It would be exhausting, just exhausting. I think what what you just said there is such a pertinent point around like even deciding whether to or not like that. That process is exhausting, you know, like I do it all the time. And I had a teenager come up to me two days ago at a school sort of saying, like, I'm really bad at advocating for myself and I don't know how to correct people when they misgender me. And I said to them, listen, I do this professionally for work. And do you know how often I don't advocate for myself? Like it is way easier to advocate for others than it is to advocate for ourselves. And it's exhausting. Like sometimes you want to assimilate if it's available to you, you know, which yeah. which is problematic and has so many kind of complexities around. But like asserting yourself as other when you can avoid it sometimes is way more exhausting than just accepting someone seeing you as different from what you are. You mentioned a, a student um, who you met. You run workshops in, in schools and professional development training in workplaces around trans identities. I think there are a lot of good-willed cis people in the world Mm. who are very scared of getting it wrong. And I imagine you spend a lot of time with those people. (laughs) What do you get asked the most? What do people want to learn from you? Um, Definitely like what to do if you mess up someone's pronouns. Mm. Um, But I think there's also just like a lot of really fundamental misunderstanding about what it even means to be trans. And that's because of a lot of propaganda in the media, but that's also because of a genuine disengagement or or lack of exposure to trans people. And so I think that, you know, the connotation often is that we're sort of choosing to go from one to the other um, or we are, you know, born in the wrong body. And I often say in my presentations, I wasn't born in the wrong body. I was born in the wrong world where there were all of these expectations around what my body would be um, before I was even born, you know, like that's a lot, that's a lot to put onto someone. It's this assignation of gender that is the problem and that is actually way more of a new fad than trans and gender diversity. Like trans people have existed for tens of thousands of years across this this world and on this continent and Aboriginal brother boys and sister girls and, you know, gender transcendence is 
something that is ongoingly part of many cultures, whereas this idea of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman in this kind of strict binary framework, that is far newer. That has come through colonialism, through whiteness, through capitalism, you know, and even so, like, you look at different stages of history and those categories have shifted and changed. Mm. So I think it is that fundamental lack of understanding that trans people aren't going from one to the other. We are just affirming who we've always been and we are inviting people in to see who we truly are. You know, Mm. when I transitioned, my mum was so afraid that I would become someone completely different And that was where her grief came from. And then when I transitioned, she was like, oh, same person, different package. Still you. You Yeah, Yeah. just much hairier and a bit smellier. You know, like that's really (laughs) all that, that's really all that changed. So, um, yeah, I think that's something that I'm asked a lot. And I think, you know, people are so afraid of getting things wrong that they don't try at all and that they actually just get things wrong all the time. (laughs) And it's like, it's okay to be in this discomfort and to be a bit awkward. And, you know, I think that our society really romanticizes the idea of getting things right all the time, which is such a big part of capitalism and toxic masculinity. Like it's okay to ask for directions, you know, like it's okay to not be sure about what someone's pronouns are. Um, and I think it's just a dance that we need to get more comfortable with. It, it reminds me a little bit of like when a friend sees someone that they think is cute and I say to them, like, you should ask them on a date. And they're like, well, I'm really afraid of rejection. And it's like, right, but if you don't ask them on a date, you're rejecting yourself. Mm. So you may as well find out, you know, there could mm. be a yes there. There's not going to be a yes if you don't even ask the question. And I think it's yeah. kind of the same with with pronouns is like if you're not even trying, you're bound to get it wrong every single time. Mm. But if you give it a go, there's actually much more potential for getting it right than if you don't try at all. I know for a lot of trans and non-binary folk, not all certainly, but many have the experience of essentially having to come out twice mm. in their life. They might tell their their folks and their friends that they're gay or they're a lesbian at say a teenager and then it's later in life that they have thought about themselves more and come to an understanding that they're trans or non-binary an awful lot of pressure on on a young person to have to navigate that journey not only for themselves but for the people around them to an extent if you're comfortable can you tell me a little bit about you yeah totally I'm happy to and you know I think um I often say that I come out every couple of years just to keep people on their toes. I don't (laughs) want them to get too comfortable. Um, But I think my first coming out was at four when I told people around me that I was a boy. So I was assigned female at birth and, you know, that came with a lot of expectations of the kind of girl I would be. And I knew from a really young age that that just wasn't who I was. But I also learnt that it was more important that I put on the dress that makes me cry and makes me miserable for that special family event than it is that I'm actually authentic with myself and and showing who I really am. And that was a lesson I learned from a really young age, you know, and I think that like parents for the most part really have the best intentions in their hearts for their kids. But sometimes when they observe difference in their children in a bid to protect them from the often hostile outside world, Sometimes parents try to condition that difference out of their children. And what that does, rather than actually protect them, is it converts a parent into a child's first bully. And when your home is not a safe place for you to be yourself authentically, where can you be? 
So that was something that I was very aware of at a very young age. And I was telling people I was a boy going kicking and screaming out of the girl section of Target and Pumpkin Patch, wasn't having a bar of it. You know, people would say I was a drama queen and I'd be like, I'm a drama king. Fine with being dramatic, just as long as I was the dramatic. Gender. Bit is not an insult. Yeah, that, that was not that was not the problem. Um, so you know, it was it was something I was affirming over and over and over again for five years of my childhood. Wow. And then because I was getting really severely bullied and having a pretty hard social time, I ended up repressing that part of myself and pushing it down as much as I could. And it wasn't until quite a few years later in year nine, so I was 15, that I started questioning my sexuality and that, you know, my school was part of safe schools and had like a queer support group and was the first faith-based school in like the Southern Hemisphere of the world to have something like that. Wow. And so it was through there that I kind of grappled with my sexuality and I came out to my mum as bisexual, which then meant that she didn't know how to police my sleepovers. She was like, (laughs) you know, you can't have boys, but you can't have girls and everyone's a threat. The practicalities of parenting. Honestly, I was like, no one's a threat. It's fine. It's not a big deal. You know, I came out as a lesbian a little bit later, which my family had some struggles with. My sister, who was 10 years older than me, said, I'm fine with you being a lesbian as long as you don't have a crush on me. I was like, there is... There's another word for that. So much to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Exactly. So, um, you know, for the most part, I had an okay time coming out as a lesbian. It wasn't like, wasn't the worst experience. I mean, schoolyard stuff as as happens, but my school was pretty supportive. I was able to bring my partner to the school formal. Like none of that was really an issue. I got really involved with Minus 18 and they were super supportive. And then in year 12, I guess I'd kind of like packaged up this idea of me presenting as a boy for five years as foreshadowing of me being a lesbian. And what I hadn't considered was that maybe it wasn't about my attraction to anyone else because I was four. Maybe it's about who I was. Yeah. But of course, this was in 2013. So this is, you know, less than 10 years ago. But really, when we think about the kind of socio-political landscape or the cultural zeitgeist, like I had nothing. I barely knew that trans people existed. You know, I had Chaz Bono was like pretty much it. Yeah. I watched uh, Boys Don't Cry was the first time I ever saw trans people represented. And if anyone's ever seen it, it is like horrific and like so traumatic and so for a 17 year old 16 year old to see themselves represented for the first time and it results in sexual assault and murder like what do you actually think that does for the psyche of a young person and that's why 48.1 percent of trans and gender diverse young people in this country have ever attempted suicide you know like when we're talking about pronouns it's not just like people being too sensitive or political correctness gone mad. Like it is suicide prevention. Mm. It is suicide prevention and mental health well-being. It is proactive community care. So if you're so afraid of getting someone's pronouns wrong, practice them. (laughs) You know, don't just shut down the whole conversation because we know that actually when young people are supported by their families and get their pronouns used right, that attempted suicide rate is halved. Yeah. 
you know, which is why I do the work that I do. Cause I'm like, we are in a very historic moment in time. Like I didn't grow up with Jonathan Van Ness, Sam Smith, Demi Lovato, Alok Vaidmanon, Elliot Page, Laverne Cox, even Caitlyn Jenner. You know, the fact that I can even do that. And these are household names, right? These are household names. Like you'd, you'd know at least one of those people. I mean, Miley Cyrus, like there are so many trans and gender diverse people who are coming out now. It's just a a completely different environment. But it also means that, and I'm sure we'll speak about this, but that we've been transitioning from a a period of invisibility to a period of hyper-visibility. So, yeah, I came out in year 12 as trans. Um, It was really brutal because there was so little exposure. No one really knew what that was or what my life would look like and there was a lot of grief in my family about what my life could look like and you know then I went through a very challenging and interesting transition where I mean I could talk about this for a long time obviously but where I went from being presented and treated to in society as a woman to a man that's a whole other podcast. That is a whole <laughs> other podcast and I can wow. go into that as much as you'd like to. But um, as far as male privilege goes, it's a very different thing to receive it than to yeah. just theoretically speak to it. And I love arguing with men about um, whether it exists or not because I'm like I've literally seen that transition in my life. Yeah. And then I came out again as non-binary because I was like, I'm actually just a mosaic of masculinity and femininity. I would like to be treated quite controversially uh, as a person and for who I actually am. (laughs) And I would like to choose the outfits that I wear based on the weather, what is appropriate for where I'm going and what makes me feel good. How you feel today. Yeah, and not what has been predetermined for my specific gendered box. Yeah, so that's the short version of that story. Listening to you talk then, my brain goes straight into listening as a parent, I suppose. I've got a young kid who's seven years old and who knows what their life holds. And I've got a bunch of friends who've got kids younger than than my son who are trans and of what of watching them go through that process as parents wanting the best for their kids but also feeling that fear that you talked about that I imagine your parents felt because the data around the life that trans and non-binary people are often subjected to is is scary data and for a parent your fear would be what's my kid's life going to look like and wanting to shield your child from anyone being cruel and the possible mental health implications of what they might go through. For you, how do you you weigh all of those different things up? Because I think often the people who want the best for you and want to protect you also create boundaries around you that make it harder to be who you are sometimes. Yeah. I mean, look, I think it's really difficult and I'm certainly not here to be like, there's a right way to parent and there's a wrong way to parent. I mean, parenting is super complicated and like props to anyone who has chosen to do that. Cause like, honestly, I've stepped into a step parent role and I'm like, this is way harder than I ever thought (laughs) it was. And I thought I had a pretty good idea. So I'm, um, I'm eating a slice of humble pie. That's for sure. Uh, but you know, I think the thing is like, it it reminds me of when I came out as trans and my brother showed me the statistics Mm. and was like, you know, look, it's awful to be trans. You shouldn't be. And you know, it was like, well, well, I am. 
So like those yeah. statistics don't come from being trans. They come from people like you. Mm. I think that's the really hard thing is like, if as a parent looking at those statistics, you know, makes you feel a sense of grief or fear or panic, like that's really important and you should mm. hold those feelings and you should process those feelings with ideally a therapist mm. or with friends or with family members who it's okay to speak about this stuff with. It's important to process those feelings, but you can't stop your child from being trans, you know. We, we mm. can't, unfortunately, we just can't control the world outside of our home. We can't control the kind of input that our kids will receive or how they'll be treated. What we can control is giving them an unconditionally loving household where they can be their full selves and helping them to build resilience. You know, if you are pushing them out from being who they really are in their own home, the chances of those statistics are much higher. I mean, there are 22% of trans and gender diverse and LGBTIQA plus young people who end up homeless. Mm. You need to create a safe environment for them to be their full selves and then at least they have that safe space to return to, you know. But Mm. if your child is really struggling at school, if they're really having a hard time, take them to a different school, you know, or get the training, Mm. demand that the training happens, become their best advocate. Like have that shield in front of them, don't become the sword from behind them, you know? And I suppose when you think about the next generation of of trans and non-binary kids, they are going to have those role models uh, that you spoke about earlier. And they're also going to have storylines, right? They're going to have characters who are created and are already being created, which makes me so excited in terms of what that means for people being able to find that sense of oh, you're like me sooner than they might otherwise have. Like when you're a kid and you've got access to Netflix, suddenly there's an opportunity that you, maybe your family circles and your friendship circles don't don't give you otherwise. But as mm. you foreshadowed, visibility is a good thing but comes at a cost. And there's been a real cost to the trans community, particularly in the last few years. How have you processed that at a personal level and in your advocacy work and, and you write books in this space as well, how do you push back against media narratives that are going to really damage not just trans kids but trans people? Mm, I don't know, Jamila, how? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, give up. The I'm so tired. Like, I am already working against what feels like a tsunami of bigotry that then to have those things added like it just it just it's not real like it's not actually real what the Australian media writes not just about trans people but also that's not what the Australian population is saying that's not what teachers are saying or parents are saying like we actually have far more support than what it seems like from the media and what's been important for me is actually getting out there and meeting crowds of people and people who really want to you know support trans people and I think the reality is that like we are much more supported than what it what it says <laughs> in the media. So it's almost like subverting the mainstream media, right? Going around it and having conversations without using that megaphone. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the worst things that has happened for trans people globally is that we've been made into a political issue that being trans is a left-wing agenda. And it's like, there are right-wing trans people. Have a look at Caitlyn Jenner, you know, like we exist... Yeah. Um, sorry, not we as in right-wing trans people. I am not, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the fact that it's become this kind of like 
partisan issue and separated sort of political narrative. It, it's just inflamed something that doesn't need to be this highly inflamed. Like, mm-hmm. and now we have more pushback and more backlash on trans progress than we really ever have. You know, the the US has more anti-trans legislation now being moved through than they ever have historically. Mm-hmm. So it's this very complicated reality where it's like, the non-linearity of progress, you know, where it's like, are we going forward or are we moving back? And how do you deal with that? I don't know. You take days off, you get therapy, you spend time with your friends and you remember what really matters. Navelle, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your life and also your incredible work with me today. We're going to leave it there. I think you're going to have to come back. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to hold you to that. Thank you. (laughs) That's it for my conversation with Navo Zissen. Thank you so much for listening. Navo will be speaking at TEDx Cecil Street. Navo Zissen Beyond Pronouns, The Next Steps on September 10 in South Melbourne. Now, Navo and I touched on some difficult questions in that conversation, including the issue of suicide. If you're not feeling great right now and you need someone to talk to, please reach out for help on 13 11 14, which is Lifeline. Or you can call QLife, which is an anonymous and free LGBTIQA plus support service. They're available from 3pm until midnight every day. You can reach them on 1800 184 527. Don't go away. Bron is jumping into the hot seat and we're going to be bringing you the weekend list. Bron is here. I am here. It is weekend list time and we, Bron, need your advice. Your advice on what to see, watch, do, listen, all those things. What are we going to do on the weekend? Please give me something sunshiny to combat the weather outside my window. So this one's not too sunshiny. This is a bit... Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, it's The Handmaid's Tale. So season <laughs> five is coming up. No sunshine. No sunshine there. Um, season five is coming out on September 15th on SBS. If you haven't caught up on the last four seasons, you've got a few weeks to do so. The whole back catalogue is on SBS On Demand. You can watch it all there. If you haven't heard about The Handmaid's Tale yet, is about a dystopian America now called Gilead. So the plot is about this oppressive society where the birth rate has gone down um, across the globe and this new America called Gilead is getting all the fertile women to basically be childbearing slaves for the wealthy and they call them handmaids. Elizabeth Moss is the main character. She is absolutely amazing in this. All the actors really are spot on. I won't give any spoilers away, but you've got a few weeks to catch up if you haven't got onto it yet. And it is just, I can't recommend it enough. It is really just a beautiful piece of television. I think you scared Gilead as well. The handmaid killing her commander. I don't think they'll be able to let that stand. There are consequences for disobeying God. Gilead wants to see us suffer. Just keep yourself safe. I pray for our children. May they live a life without all of this hate. May they do better than we did.
The Handmaid's Tale novel was something I studied at school and I remember thinking it was just completely extraordinary and the television show has really lived up to its promise and uh, in the fifth season has gone well beyond the contents of the book but it has still managed to be like an absolutely rollicking watch. Um, thank you for sharing that with everyone. I have uh, still on the gender tone but quite a different way. Uh, I want to recommend the latest Crikey Read. So the Crikey Read is a little bit like a quarterly essay. It comes out every now and then. Um, it's always a comment on something that's going on more broadly in our country. This one is by Christina Zawika and it's called A Fairer Future for Women at Work in Australia Leaning Out. I just love the idea of leaning out. And the question that Christina poses in this essay is what happens when girl power grows up? Uh, So she's looking at all those concepts of like the early noughties and even a little bit later with uh, Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In being published that said, you can do it, girls, gender equality, we fix that, everyone's equal now, you just go for it. It's about how far you can lean in, how hard you can work, how powerful you can be. And Christina kind of flips that on its head and says – Actually, this is a dazzling promise, but it's also a lie. Sheer will alone and sort of personal self-empowerment can't overcome gender inequalities in the workplace. That has to be systemic. That has to be done by workplaces and governments. That's not something each woman can do on her own. She unpacks all this in a really smart way. She's super clever, but also super readable. And it's like, it's a bite-sized little book. So you can just devour it, get a whole bunch of content uh, and you don't have to stick around for another 300 pages. My next one is The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Season 12 is currently airing on Hey You. We're about halfway through the season with new episodes coming out every Thursday. The entire franchise is amazing if you love reality TV. At the start, it was a little bit, uh, I would say maybe a bit sickening (laughs) seeing everyone flaunt (laughs) their wealth, but you really get a fun look, you know, behind the curtain of these ultra rich women, their friends, their families. It is, yeah, it's a lot of fun to watch how, I guess, the other side lives. Um, it's a reality TV staple if you're into that stuff. It won't be for everybody, but it is really like a fun, easy, light watch. Happy birthday, my love. You look beautiful. Thank you. So I'm opening up a bottle of 1999 Dom for the turn of the century. It was the oldest one I could find. I couldn't find anything your age. those shows always make me feel a little bit icky after I've watched them like I need a quick shower but at the same time I always go back for more so there is something wrong with me um thanks for that recommendations Bron. I am going to make us feel better about ourselves by recommending something certainly more worthy and certainly a little bit more serious for you and folks I want to ask something of you I want to give you something to do today so right now Um, in August of 2022, there are 50 million people uh, in this world who are on the brink of famine. And famine is a very particular word with a particular definition. The UN wouldn't throw this one around lightly. And this world hunger story has sort of come about through a combination of different things, through conflict in parts of the world, COVID-19, climate shocks, and of course, the war in the Ukraine. There's sort of this perfect global storm uh, that's been created. The good news is that you and I can help and we can help save lives. At the moment, there is a petition to the Australian government asking them to deliver $150 million to support communities in the Horn of Africa, Afghanistan, Yemen and Syria. If you think that sounds like a good idea, and I suspect you do, uh, Australia's aid budget has fallen by a whole lot over the last decade and it's time we started to rebuild it. 
you can help by writing to your local MP. That sounds hard, doesn't have to be hard. If you head to www.fightfamine.com.au, there's a really easy template. All you have to do is click a few things. You don't have to write a handwritten letter. It can all happen online. If you do that together, I believe we can make a difference and together we can help fight famine. So thank you very much in advance because I know you're all going to come through on that request. And that brings us to the end of today's weekend briefing. Thank you for being with us. If you enjoyed uh, being in our company today, then you should be in our company all the time. And you can do that by downloading the listener app and following the briefing, or you can follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a lovely rating and a review. It will help other people to find the briefing podcast. We will be back in your ears bright and early on Monday morning with the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.